If you've never had the privilege of watching a baby being born, particularly your own, I hope you get that. I, get, I hope you get to at some point in time because it truly is an amazing experience. Something that actually many people describe as divine. Because a phrase that you've probably heard many times, and maybe you've said it, I've heard multiple times from people after watching their child being born is, I don't know how someone cannot believe in God after seeing that. And I actually thought, thought that first, that, that same thing after watching my first two daughters being born. But after the birth of my third daughter, I had a completely different thought come into my mind. And I'm going to come back to what that thought was in just a little bit. But today... We're in part four of this series that we've called Polarized. And maybe more than at any time in history, we're living in a polarized world where people are being divided into opposing camps against one another. And everyone, including you, has some doctrinal, theological, spiritual, moral, social, political, sexual, ideological positions that they, that you, deeply believe are true and are right. And maybe more than ever before, we're living in a world where everyone is taking their stand by their right positions. The approach you and everyone is naturally inclined to take and many times feels forced to take is to take our stand over here by our right positions away from those people who disagree, those people who believe and behave and think differently, those people who in your view are wrong. And we're, again, we're over here, everyone's yelling at one another, talking at one another, fighting with one another. No one's listening to one another. And everyone's concluding, unless you believe and behave and think like me, unless you agree with my right position, then you and me, we're against one another. And that's doing nothing but creating just hostility and anger and uh, resentment, bitterness, tension, and division within our country and communities, within families, within churches. And the reality is, is there are so many issues that are creating polarization in our country and in our world today, but as I thought and prayed about what's causing division within the church today, four issues kept coming to my mind. And those four are sex, gender identity, abortion, and drugs and alcohol. And these aren't the only four, as you well know, but to some degree or another, all four are causing division between, between followers of Christ and between the church and unchurched people, people who are, would not say they're a part of a church, people who would not call themselves followers of Christ. And it doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way, even if and when we disagree. So, throughout the series, I'm addressing each of these four polarizing issues. And so far, we've talked about sex, specifically sexual immorality. Last week, we talked about gender identity. And today, we're going to focus in on abortion. Now, before I get into this today, I, I just want to quickly review my three primary goals for this seri series because it's so important to remember these as I navigate this polarizing issue today. The first primary goal I have for this series is to discover biblical truth around each of these four issues. And once again, I'm not so arrogant to say I have God all figured out, but I'm going to do the best job I can to communicate what I believe to be biblical truth and God's heart on this issue today. And unfortunately, as you know, I only have 30 minutes which means I do not have enough time to look at every single verse, answer every single question, talk about every situation, or speak into every different person's life. And so there's going to be so much today that goes unsaid. My second primary goal for this series is surrender. And I've said this every week because it's so important that we're clear on this. 
According to the writers of scripture, we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone. We're saved by God's grace through putting our faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life alone. Which means none of these issues in and of themselves affects our salvation, but how we choose to respond or not respond to them does affect our transformation. Because God wants to transform you more into everything he's created you to be. And the transforming work that only God can do in us requires one huge thing from us, and that huge thing is surrender. So my prayer as I address this polarizing issue today is that all of us who call ourselves followers of Christ surrender to however Jesus prompts and convicts and inspires and invites us to follow him because transformation happens by following Jesus one next step at a time. And the more we're transformed into who God's created us to be, the more God fills us with the life, the hope, the peace, the joy, the healing, that can only come from him. My last and maybe most important goal of this series is unity. Jesus won, and he only had one. Jesus' one new covenant command for his followers, for his church, was to love one another just as he first loved us. And Jesus made it very clear by, that by that one thing, we'll demonstrate and authenticate if we're truly one of his followers or not. My prayer for today is not that we agree on everything. And that's not my prayer because disagreeing, it isn't a choice. We don't, we don't get to choose if we disagree with one another or not. My prayer for today is that we all make the choice to follow Jesus by loving one another just as he first loved us when we do disagree. And that's my prayer because God cannot be glorified when the church is polarized. Creator God's ultimate purpose for you as an individual, for me as an individual, and for his church is that we glorify him. And God cannot be glorified when followers of Christ, when Jesus' church is polarized from each other or from people who don't know him. When we choose to stand relationally with one another in the messy middle and love one another just as Christ first loved us, no matter what, is when God is most glorified. And when God is glorified is when we experience the transforming presence and power of God. And isn't that what we all want to experience in our lives? Isn't that what we all want to experience in the church? All right, on to our topic of the day, abortion. I know very few if any, and I'm sure they're out there, but I know very few people who desire to or who believe it's okay to take an innocent human life. Therefore, there's almost zero polarization over whether or not a person should be allowed to terminate an innocent human life. What's made the issue of abortion so polarizing is the disagreement over the answer to this question. And the question is, when does human life begin? At at what point does a fertilized egg become a living person? Is it at conception? Is it when it becomes an embryo? Is it when it becomes a fetus? Is it at a certain week during gestation? Is it after they are born? And here's what you have to know. Your answer to this question, when does human life begin? Your answer to that question impacts every single thing that you believe about abortion. 
It impacts if you view abortion as terminating a human life or not. It impacts if you believe abortion should be completely outlawed or if it should be allowed up to a certain week of pregnancy. It, impact, it impacts if it's a woman's choice or not. When, when, uh, when I hear a woman say, my body, my choice, I know very few, if any, women who are arguing for taking a human life. When a woman says, it's my body, my choice, essentially what they're saying is, I've concluded when I believe human life begins. And it's my choice to have an abortion until that point because it's my body. And I have a right to do with my body what I want to do with my body. So you can see people's differing, conclu differing conclusions on this question, it creates a ton of emotion. And that's created a ton, an enormous amount of polarization within our country and within families and within communities and within churches. So when does human life begin? Today, I'm going to attempt to answer that question based on what I believe to be truth that God has communicated through the writers of Scripture. And to do this, I'm going to do what I don't normally do. I'm going to jump to just a few different passages of Scripture, and I'm going to do this ultra quick because I have very short time today. But before I dive into these passages of Scripture to answer this question, let me just reiterate a few things that you've heard me say earlier in this series because it's important before we do this today. First of all, this is not a political series, and this is not a political sermon. This is a biblical series, and this is a biblical sermon, which means today you won't hear terms like pro-life and pro-choice because those are not biblical terms. Those are political terms that people define in many, many different ways, and it's doing nothing but creating polarization. And as you know, I am not here to push or promote any political agenda, any political policy, or any political party. I am here to point us to Jesus and to the truths that God has revealed to the writers of Scripture. If you're a follower of Christ, your primary concern and my primary concern should not be how the government defines abortion or constructs laws around it. Our primary concern should be to discover biblical truth and live our lives in a way that glorifies God. Second thing, just before we dive into this, is I am not so naive to think that most of you don't already have your answer to this question. When does human life begin? That you believe is right and you believe is truth. Therefore, all you're doing right now is to see, waiting to see if I agree with you or not. If you disagree with my answer to this question, if you disagree of how I'm saying that, that this is biblical truth according to the writers of Scripture, if you disagree with that, I just encourage you to ask why. And is it possible? I'm not saying it's possible. I'm just encouraging you to ask the question. Is it possible that what you've labeled as truth is actually founded and grounded in yourself? In your opinions, your past, your experiences, your hurts, your struggles, your wants, your desires. Maybe is it possible that it's founded in Culture, our, our culture, instead of creator, holy, almighty God and his created design, des de desire, and will, and intent. Listen, I may be wrong, but you may be too. So if you disagree with how I'm defining biblical truth or you don't care if that it's biblical truth, that's okay. You don't answer to me and I don't answer to you, but we'll all answer to God someday. So listen, no matter if you call yourself a follower of Christ or not, 
No matter if you've had an abortion before or would ever think you'd consider abortion, no matter what you think about abortion, no matter where you've been in the past or where you currently are on your journey, no matter what you believe about the Bible, I invite you just for a few minutes, just a few minutes to just hang with me for a few minutes with an open mind and an open heart to what God may want to say to you today. I believe if you do, that God will do what only he can do in you. And for some of you, I believe what God wants to do in you today can absolutely transform your life, your entire life, from this point forward. All right, according to the writers of Scripture, when does human life begin? Well, to begin answering this question, I want to go back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and look at a couple verses we've already looked at numerous times in this series. Here's the first five words of our Bible that set the tone for everything in our Bible from that point forward. In the beginning, which means before you, before me, before everything, God. In the beginning, the one, eternal, almighty, sovereign, holy, perfect God created the writer of Genesis is saying there is one eternal God who is the creator of everything. And in the verses that follows, the writer of Genesis described what God created over the next six days. And we read that on the sixth day, he reaches the climax of his creation when he created human beings. And here's how the writer of Genesis described it. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. According to the writer of Genesis, holy, eternal, sovereign, creator God is the creator of everything. And the pinnacle of his creation is humanity whom he created in his image for his glory. And the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul actually reiterated this in a letter he wrote to the Colossian church in Colossians 1. He wrote, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Meaning the purpose of everything he created, your purpose, my purpose, is for his glory. The Apostle Paul also declared that creator God is the creator of all, all human life to the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17 when he said to them, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For in him we live and move and have our being. According to the writers of Scripture, God is the creator of human life. And since creator God is the creator of all human life, every human life belongs to God and should be received as gifts from God. And since holy creator God created us in his image, every human life is sacred and special and unique and should be treated with dignity and reverence and respect. According to the writers of scripture, God is the creator of all human life. But this still doesn't answer the question, when does human life begin? And throughout Scripture, here's what's reiterated over and over and over and over again. That human life starts at conception. I want to show you a few quick examples of this, starting with King David. 
King David was an Israelite king who lived about a thousand years or so before Jesus. And in Psalm 139, after David declared God's sovereignty, he praised God and wrote, For you created my inmost being, not just my physical body, but my soul, who I am. You knit me together, which means you wove me and put me together while in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. David's saying, I'm not an accident. I'm not a mistake. I am fearfully and wonderfully created by you, God. Therefore, I am sacred and special and unique. I know that full well. He goes on. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together, when I was being intricately formed by you, God, in the depths of the earth, and he used that term as a poetic expression for the secret and darkness of the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and unformed doesn't mean not fully living. Unformed just means not yet fully formed. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. David's going, God, you saw me. You knew me. You had a plan for me the entire time you were forming me in my mother's womb. David believed that God created him and that his life started at conception. And Jeremiah, who was an Israelite prophet who lived about 600 years before Jesus, believed that too. And Jeremiah believed it because God specifically told him. Here's, Jeremiah recorded what God told him in Jeremiah 1. He said, For the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God's saying to Jeremiah, from conception to birth, I personally knew you. The entire time I was forming you in the womb. At one week, at six weeks, at 10 weeks, at 15 weeks, at 20 weeks, at 30 weeks, I personally knew you and had a plan for your life. The writers of scripture always assume human life starts at conception, not birth. And that's clear from the words that they chose to use. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. And Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, used the word brephos at two different times. And the first time he used the word brephos was in Luke 141 in reference to John the Baptist who had not yet been born. And here's what he wrote. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby... Brephos leaped in her womb. By the way, why would he leap in her room? In the womb. Because the Brephos felt emotion. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the first time Luke used it. The second time Luke used the word Brephos was in Luke 2, after an angel announced to a group of shepherds that the Messiah, that Jesus, had been born. And here's what he wrote. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, Brephos, who was lying in a manger. Luke, who not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but was also a physician, used the same Greek word to describe a baby in the womb and describe a baby who had been born. Not because he didn't have another word to use, but to emphasize the significance of human life at both stages. The only difference was their location, their size, their level of development, their level of dependence. So when does human life begin? According to what holy, almighty, sovereign, creator God has communicated through the writers of scripture, 
Here's the answer. God is the creator of life. Life starts at conception. I told you earlier that when my third daughter was born, after my third daughter was born, a completely different thought went through my mind than after my first two daughters were born, which may have been very confusing for some of you because you've only ever heard me talk about having two daughters. Let me explain. In 2012, Christy got pregnant again, and we were so excited. <laughs> we were so excited because after Grace and Reese were born, we had multiple miscarriages. So we were so pumped. And getting through the first trimester, we were finally so, you know, so excited about that. But the excitement didn't last very long. On January 4th, 2013, Ginger, our third daughter, was stillborn at 22 weeks. And these are actually Ginger's handprints and footprints. I mean, I remember looking at her and just thinking she looked just like my younger daughter, Reese, just like her. And after the chaos stopped and all the doctors left the room and the nurses left the room and Christy's drugged up, sleeping, it was just quiet. And for the next hour, I just held, I just held Ginger by myself and I still remember her body went from about the tip of my finger to the bottom of my hand. I just held her for an hour. I just held her hands with my hands, and I held her feet with my feet, and I kissed her face. And you know what I wasn't thinking at that moment? What I wasn't thinking at that moment was this was a fetus. What I wasn't thinking at that moment was this was a clump of cells. What I was thinking at that moment was, this is my daughter. This is my daughter who I never got to know because her life ended too soon. And at that moment, it became clearer to me than ever before what the writers of Scripture reiterate over and over and over again. That God is the creator of life. And life starts at conception. Now, if that's true, which I obviously believe that it is, if that's true, here's what that means. It means that every unborn human life belongs to God and should be received as gifts from God. It means that every unborn human life is sacred and special and unique and should be treated with the same dignity and reverence and respect as human lives who have been born. It means that when a person, chooses an a, a person chooses an abortion at any point in time after conception, one week, six weeks, 12 weeks, 17 weeks, 22 weeks, 30 weeks, they're choosing to terminate a human life. It means that it is your choice as a man or woman to have sex or not because it is your body. But once your choice leads to the conception of a human life that God created, it's no longer your choice what to do with that body because that body being formed in you or your wife 
or your girlfriend or your fiance is not your body. It's his body. God is the creator of life. Life starts at conception. That's what I believe to be truth according to holy creator almighty God. And if you disagree that this is biblical truth, I'm not here to try to talk you into it. I do not care about making abortion an issue to be debated. I care about real people in the real world who have faced or who are going to face the heaviness of, and the impact of this in their life or the life of a loved one. So I want to quickly talk to three groups of people. The first group of people I want to talk to are those of you who may experience an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy someday and are faced with the choice of having an abortion or not. And once again, before I get into this, let me just say, once again, I do not have time to speak into every possible situation. And to be honest with you, I don't have perfect answers to questions like, what if I was raped? Or what if the doctor says having this baby will put my life at risk? I hope you never have to face a situation like that. But, for, but if you do, you need to know that we are here to walk beside you through that. For those of you who have had to face those type of painful situations, my heart breaks for you. And I don't know what to say exactly, but I know that God loves you and that we do too. And I and we are here to walk with you to help you find hope and healing. So please do not hesitate to reach out. I also know that everything I'm about ready to share means something completely different for you. So I completely understand that. From my experience of talking to people who have considered, are considering, or who have had an abortion due to an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy, from my experience, what I've seen is there's two things that are driving them to do so. One of two things. And for some of you, this will be very hard to hear, but just go hear those people's stories and you'll see this right away as well. And one of those two things are either selfishness or fear. Selfishness. This, this, will, this will negatively affect my life. I won't be able to do what I want to do. This will mess up my plans for my life. Or fear. What will they think of me? I'll be judged. I'll be ridiculed. How will I take care of this baby? My parents will disown me. And you've got to know that both selfishness and fear are rooted in what we talked about last week. Both selfishness and fear are rooted in our fallen, sinful nature because they drive us to put ourselves and our wants and our desires and our will at the center of everything instead of God and his wants and his desires and his will. So, for those of you who call yourself a follower of Christ, for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus and asked him to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, and who experience an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy someday, I want to challenge you to make abortion a non-option because God is the creator of life and life starts at conception. Now, you may think that you never consider having an abortion because you believe that, but selfishness and fear are extremely strong influencers in our lives. 
Which means the only way you'll ever make abortion a non-option is if you take your eyes and if you take your focus off yourself, off self-gratification, off self-preservation, and put your eyes and your focus on God and his wants and his desire and his will and putting those at the center. And that starts by asking God this question. God, what will glorify you? God, what will glorify you? If you're a follower of Christ, whoever experiences an unplanned, unplanned or unwanted pregnancy and you truly want to follow Jesus through it, I challenge you to seek God's will by praying this question. God, what will glorify you? Instead of looking at myself and my fear and my selfishness, I'm going to point my eyes at God right now, what will glorify you? And if you pray that, he is going to answer you more than likely through a prompting, a stirring, a conviction. That's Jesus through his spirit inviting you in that moment to follow him. And the way to follow Jesus is by surrendering. Surrendering to however he is leading us. And surrender, it isn't always easy. But it's always worth it. It's always worth it for you it's always worth it for the health of your heart and your soul. It's always worth it for your peace. It's always worth it for your relationship with God. And it's always worth it for the benefit of others. The second group of people I want to talk to is every single one of us who say we're followers of Christ. And I want to challenge all of us who say we're followers of Christ to once again be a person who stands with people in the messy middle. And what that means today is this. First, stand in the messy middle with people who are considering having an abortion. Someone who's considering having an abortion more than likely is going to want to talk or need to talk to someone that they trust, they feel loved by, who won't judge them as they're wrestling through this. Well, be, be that someone. Be that someone they want to talk to by welcoming them with open arms and loving them just as Christ first loved you by embodying the fullness of grace and truth. Be that someone. Be that someone because influence happens within the context of relationship. And here's what also this means. Stand in the messy mid middle with people who have chosen to have an abortion. I've, nev I've never met a person who's had an abortion, who also didn't have some level of guilt and shame and pain because of it. Well, God loves them. And they need to experience the healing power of Jesus in their life. And do you know how that's experienced? It's experienced through you. And it's experienced through me, Jesus' followers, the final group of people I want to talk to is those of you who have had an abortion. And I don't know what to say exactly because I've never walked in your shoes. So instead of me talking to you, I'm going to let my good friend Beth, who happens to be Misty, Misty our worship leader, who happens to be Misty's mom, do it. Take a look at this. I first got pregnant when I was... Um, 19 years old. I was in a relationship that I never should have been in in the first place. Um, never considered God in the equation or asked God if I should be in that relationship. I got pregnant 
and I came from a family, very strong Christian family. My dad was a deacon in the church. Really all I thought about was myself and how that was going to affect me. The embarrassment and shame that I thought that I would bring to myself and my family was really tough. I had an abortion. I uh, went to the clinic and just uh, thought that after that, that it was gonna be gone and erased and no one would ever know and I would go about my merry life and things would be okay. I just allowed myself to live under that shame and guilt and not telling anyone. It was in a very secret place for me. When I was 20 years old, I was faced with the same um, situation. I was pregnant again and very much so considering this option again. A vice president of a company that I was working at knew that I was not at my best and called me in his office and asked me what was wrong and I told him and he met me where I was and didn't judge me. I did not have an abortion and through that um, Misty, my daughter, was, bo was born. I almost took her life to see where her life is today. Um, God knit her and formed her. I am so grateful that um, that's the decision that I made. Choosing not to have an abortion with Misty and seeing what God has done in her life and seeing um, the impact that she's had. I look at um, that I did have an abortion and they could have had the same opportunities in life to have a full and rich and wonderful um, life that I chose um, to have an abortion. And that will always sadden me. That part will never go away. Um, but I still today know that I will meet them on the other side in heaven, that I am forgiven and I am loved and I am cherished. If you have had an abortion, I want you to know that God loves you. God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. He's not mad at you. He wants you to crawl in his arms. He wants to take the burden of shame and guilt, anxiety and depression, and he wants to lift it off of you. You can't do that yourself. There's not a book, a counselor, or anything on this earth that can do that for you but the love of Jesus Christ. I've experienced through that freedom and that is the greatest um, feeling in the world to know that um, I am washed clean, I am whole in the name of Jesus, and I am free. Listen, if you've had an abortion, I just want to reiterate what Beth said. God loves you. Jesus can and Jesus wants to forgive you and heal what feels dead inside. And it requires not hiding. You do not need to feel shame here. You do not need to hide. There are women here who have had an abortion who have healed from that and know the forgiveness of Christ through that and have freedom in that today who are more than willing and would want to talk to you if you need that. 
Furthermore, there's tools and groups and environments and people here that can help you process that shame and process that guilt and process that heaviness and process that pain to lead toward hope. For those of you, though, who have never put your faith in Jesus, you need to know that experiencing the salvation of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the healing power of Christ starts by entering into a relationship with Christ. Starts by putting our faith in Jesus, asking Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives. And if you've never done that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. And there is no pressure to ever do that. But if you feel that a stirring today, a prompting today that just doesn't even make sense to do that, I believe that's Jesus through His Spirit right now inviting you with open arms. I realize that this is very, 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 very heavy for some of us. And so I want to close, before we close and, you know, we walk, I'll walk out here and have to like smile at each other, you know, and I, like, this is fun. Uh, I just want to, I just want to close the same week the way I did the last couple weeks and just give a few moments in silence to just breathe and reflect and pray. And after a couple moments, I'm going to pray over us. And at that time, for those of you who have never put your faith in Jesus, by asking him to be the forgiver of your sins and lead your life, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do so at that time. So let's just take a couple minutes in silence. I don't know what you may or may not be doing in each of our lives regards to where we're at on our journeys but Lord if, if you are stirring in any of us if you are prompting any of us to take a step whatever that step may be I, I pray that we take it today and that we become a people whether it's in how we relate to one another or how we navigate this choice that we, we may face someday Maybe it's healing from the past of what we've done. I pray that we just look to you right now and say, God, what will glorify you? And we choose to take a step toward your glory. Lord, for every person who's never put their faith in you, Jesus, who 
feels that prompting and stirring to do that today, I pray that right now where they're at, either in this room, in their seats, or at home, that they pray to quiet, they'd quietly pray to do that, Jesus. That right now, they confess their need for a Savior because they know their violation of sin broke their relationship with you, God. And in this moment, Jesus, I pray that they declare that they believe, Jesus, that you are the Savior, that you are their Savior because of your death for them and your resurrection from the grave. And right now, Jesus, I pray that they ask you to be their Savior, that at this moment they put their faith in you, Jesus, asking you to be the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life, their Lord, their God. Jesus' name.